Hello and welcome to the podcast for the November 2008 issue of The Lancet Neurology. Helen Frankish, The Lancet Neurology's editor, is with me. I'm Richard Lane, The Lancet's web editor. Let's start off with a research article you've got about hemicrania continua, which is actually a rare form of headache. Can you just describe exactly what HC, as it's known, is, Helen, and how is it normally treated? So it's a rare condition that's characterised by a continuous one-sided headache with exacerbations of severe pain. And patients typically have 15 days or more of headache per month. And by definition, the headache responds completely to indomethacin. But not all patients are able to tolerate this treatment because of its side effects or contraindications to therapy. And for these patients, the treatment options are limited. So in this research article, Helen, the authors are outlining a new approach. Tell us about that. Well, there's been a lot of interest in the past few years in stimulation of the occipital nerve for headaches that are difficult to manage. And with this technique, the nerve is stimulated using a small device that's implanted under the skin on the same side as the headache. And in this study by Peter Goldsby and colleagues, six patients who had experienced headaches on average for about 18 years before the study were implanted with the device which is roughly the size of two matchsticks. And what were the main study findings here and what conclusions can be drawn because as you said, we're talking about literally a handful of patients here, aren't we? The researchers used a, a crossover design, so the device was switched on for the first three months, then off for the fourth month, then on again during long-term follow-up. And patients recorded their headaches during this time period in a headache diary. And at long-term follow-up, five of the patients showed an improvement in their headaches that ranged from about 30% to 95%. And these patients would recommend the treatment to other patients in a similar situation and only one patient who experienced a 20% worsening in headache wouldn't recommend the device to another patient. In terms of clinical implications Really, we should remember that this is a small study and there was no placebo arm, so the results do need confirmation in larger studies, ideally with blinded controls. But if these results are reproduced, the use of these uh, miniature devices could change the way that this type of headache is managed and may have implications for the treatment of other headaches such as migraine. Thanks, Helen. And moving on to another research article you've got, and this is looking at minimally conscious state Can you just tell us what is the issue here? Is this to do with people who are partially awake or not quite asleep or conscious and and their potential to feel pain? Is that what we're talking about? Patients who are in a minimally conscious state show some signs of being aware of their environment. So, for example, they might respond to sounds or correctly answer yes or no to questions at a level that is greater than would be expected due to chance. But their responses are not consistent and so it's not possible to reliably assess the level of pain of these patients and there are no guidelines on managing pain in these patients. So in this study, Stephen Lorries and colleagues set out to evaluate how pain is processed in the brain of these patients in a minimally conscious state. And they compared this to controls and also to patients who are in a persistent vegetative state who show no awareness of their surroundings. And what are the main findings here, Helen? The researchers stimulated the median nerve at a level that was rated as highly unpleasant to painful in healthy patients. And the nerve was stimulated in five patients in a minimally conscious state, 15 controls, and 15 patients in a persistent vegetative state. 
and in controls, stimulation of the nerve resulted in pain and increased blood flow in several areas of the brain that make up the pain matrix. And patients in a minimally conscious state showed a similar pattern of activation to controls and much greater activation than patients who were in a persistent vegetative state. And the fact that the minimally conscious patients showed similar activation in the brain to controls suggests that patients who are in a minimally conscious state might have the capacity to feel pain. And this supports the idea that these patients should be given analgesic treatment. Moving on, Helen, to my favourite piece in this month's issue of The Lancet Neurology. This is a review looking at the brain-computer interface, which just sounds really exciting. What's the concept here? Well, the idea is that brain-computer interfaces might be able to improve motor function in patients who have impaired muscle control, for example, due to progressive neurological diseases such as amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS, or after a stroke or other brain injury. And these brain-computer interfaces allow patients to bypass their impaired signalling system and allow patients to interact directly with their environment using brain signals. And there are many ways in which this technology can be used. So, for example, people can be trained to use EEG signals or brain waves to control a cursor on a computer screen or to control things like the temperature or lighting of their surroundings. This looks like an exciting and encouraging prospect or idea. So how actually, if this was implemented widely, how, what, what difference would it make for people with severe neurological disorders, do you think? Well, these sorts of technologies would allow patients who are severely disabled, for example, those with severe ALS, to have more independence because they can be used to enable people to do things like access the internet or control a television or operate a motorised wheelchair which would have a positive effect on their quality of life. And research has shown that patients who are severely paralysed and use these sorts of brain-computer interfaces can have what they consider to be a reasonable quality of life and are only slightly more likely to be depressed than patients who don't have motor disabilities. And this technology might also be useful in the rehabilitation of patients with stroke, though this research is at a much earlier stage. And an obvious question, I have to ask it. I mean, it sounds really positive and encouraging, but it must be expensive. Isn't there a danger that something like this is only going to be available to very few, relatively few people who need it? The cost of the technology itself isn't prohibitive, but the problem is that at the moment the systems need substantial ongoing technical support, which is very expensive and is only available from a few research groups at the moment. It's difficult to estimate how long it might be before this kind of technology becomes more widely available, and this will depend on on whether and and by how much the need for ongoing technical support can be reduced. And finally, Helen, briefly, let's just look at the review looking at sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. Can you just tell us what this review is about? Sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, or SUDEP, is the leading cause of death in people with uncontrolled epilepsy. And it's poorly understood, partly because the mechanisms that underlie SUDEP are not known. Why should one seizure be fatal in a patient who's experienced many many similar seizures in the past isn't known. Only a handful of cases of sudden unexpected death have occurred while patients were being monitored by EEG. The deaths all occurred immediately after a seizure. And there was no common mechanism that was responsible for SUDEP, but possible mechanisms include electrical shutdown of the brain or cardiac or respiratory dysfunction. And there are a few important points, I think, to draw out from this review. The main one, I think, is that we need to develop methods to prevent SUDEP. As SUDEP generally occurs after a seizure and 
poor seizure control is a risk factor for sudden death. Effective treatment with anti-epileptic drugs or surgical management might reduce the risk of SUDEP, though there's no direct evidence of this. And also, studies have suggested that um, sharing a bedroom with someone who's capable of giving assistance might be protective. And all of these issues should be discussed with patients whose epilepsy is uncontrolled in a balanced way so that the risk of SUDEP can be put into perspective without causing alarm. Thanks very much, Helen. And clearly it's a a very varied issue of the Lancet Neurology for the November issue. Thanks very much for listening. Those were some of the highlights from the November 2008 issue of the Lancet Neurology. See you next month.